Welcome to Jabberwocky Audio Theatre. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you. Visit our website at jabberaudio.com slash support to learn more or go to patreon.com slash team jabberwocky. The following audio theater is rated ADPG, so parental guidance is suggested. Jabberwocky Audio Theater presents Through a Glass, Darkly. Tonight's production, The Black Cat by Edgar Allan Poe. For the narrative which I am about to tell, I neither expect nor solicit belief. Mad indeed would I be to expect it in a case where my very senses reject their own evidence. Yet, mad am I not, and very surely do I not dream. But tomorrow I die, and today I would unburden my soul. My immediate purpose is to place before you, plainly, succinctly, and without comment, a series of mere household events. I will not attempt to expound them. Hereafter, perhaps, some intellect more calm, more logical, and far less excitable than my own will perceive in the circumstances I detail nothing more than an ordinary succession of very natural causes and effects. From my infancy, I was noted for the docility of my disposition. My tenderness of heart was even so conspicuous as to make me the jests of my companions. I was especially fond of animals, and was indulged by my parents with a great variety of pets. With these I spent most of my time and was never so happy as when feeding and caressing them. This peculiarity of my character grew with me, and in my manhood I derived from it one of my principal sources of pleasure. To those who have cherished an affection for a faithful dog, I need hardly trouble explaining the nature or the intensity of the gratification thus derived. There is something in a dog's unselfish and self-sacrificing love which goes directly to the heart of man. I married early and happily found my wife's disposition not uncongenial with my own. Observing my partiality for domestic pets, she lost no opportunity in procuring those of the most agreeable kind. We had birds, goldfish, a fine dog, rabbits, a small monkey with reddish fur, and a cat. This latter was a remarkably large and beautiful animal, entirely, astonishingly black. In speaking of his intelligence, my wife, who at heart was not a little tinctured with superstition, made frequent allusion to the ancient popular notion which regarded all black cats as witches in disguise. Not that she was ever serious upon this point. Pluto, this was the cat's name, was my favorite pet and playmate. I alone fed him, and he attended me wherever I went about the house. It was even with difficulty that I could prevent him from following me through the streets. Our friendship lasted in this manner for several years, during which my general character, through the instrumentality of the fiend intemperance, had, I blush to confess it, experienced a radical alteration for the worse. 
I grew day by day more moody, more irritable, more regardless of the feelings of others. I used intemperate language with my wife. At length, I even offered her personal violence. My pets, of course, were made to feel the change in my disposition. I not only neglected, but ill-used them. For Pluto, however, I still retained sufficient regard to restrain me from maltreating him, as I made no scruple of maltreating the rabbits, the monkey, or even the dog. When by accident or through affection, they came in my way. But my disease grew upon me. For what disease is alcohol? And at length, even Pluto began to experience the effects of my ill temper. One night, returning home much intoxicated from one of my haunts about town, I fancied that the cat avoided my presence. I seized him, and in his fright at my violence, he inflicted a slight wound upon my hand with his teeth. The fury of a demon instantly possessed me. I knew myself no longer. A fiendish malevolence thrilled every fiber of my frame. I took from my pocket a penknife, opened it, and grasping the poor beast by the throat, deliberately cut one of its eyes from the socket. I shudder even as I tell of this, this damnable atrocity. When reason returned with the morning, I experienced a sentimental half of horror, half of remorse for the crime for which I was guilty. But it was at best a feeble and equivocal feeling. I again plunged into excess and soon drowned in wine all memory of the deed. In the meantime, the cat slowly recovered. The socket of the lost eye presented a frightful appearance, it is true, but he no longer appeared to suffer any pain. He went about the house as usual, but, as might be expected, fled in extreme terror at my approach. I had so much of my old heart left as to be at first grieved by the dislike of a creature which had once so loved me, but this feeling soon gave place to irritation. And then came, as if to my final and irrevocable overthrow, a spirit of perverseness. It was an unfathomable longing to offer violence, to do wrong for the wrong's sake only, that urged me to continue and finally to consummate the injury I had inflicted upon the unoffending cat. One morning, in cold blood, I slipped a noose about Pluto's neck and hung it to the limb of a tree. Hung it with tears streaming from my eyes and with the bitterest remorse at my heart hung it because I knew that it had loved me, and because I felt it had given me no reason of offense, hung it because I knew that in so doing I was committing a sin, a deadly sin, that would so jeopardize my immortal soul as to place it, if such a thing were possible, even beyond the reach of the infinite mercy of the most merciful and most terrible God. On the night of the day on which this cruel deed was done, I was aroused from sleep by the cry of fire. The curtains of my bed were in flames. The whole house was blazing. It was with great difficulty that my wife, a servant, and myself made our escape from the conflagration. The destruction was complete. My entire worldly wealth was swallowed up, and I resigned myself thenceforth to despair. 
I am above the weakness of seeking to establish a sequence of cause and effect between the disaster and the atrocity. But I am detailing a chain of facts, and wish not to leave even a possible link imperfect. On the day succeeding the fire, I visited the ruins. The walls, with one exception, had fallen in. This exception was found in a compartment wall not very thick, which stood about the middle of the house, and against which had rested the head of my bed. The plastering had here in great measure resisted the action of the fire, a fact which I attributed to its having been recently spread. About this wall a dense crowd were collected, and many persons seemed to be examining a particular portion of it with eager attention. The words strange and singular and other similar expressions excited my curiosity. I approached and saw, as if graven in bas-relief upon the white surface, the figure of a gigantic cat. The impression was given with an accuracy truly marvelous. There was a rope about the animal's neck. My wonder and my terror were extreme. But at length reflection came to my aid. The cat, I remembered, had been hung in a garden adjacent to the house. Upon the alarm of fire, this garden had been immediately filled by the crowd. The animal must have been cut from the tree and thrown through an open window into my chamber. The falling of other walls had compressed the victim of my cruelty into the substance of the freshly spread plaster, the lime of which, with the flames and the ammonia from the carcass, had then accomplished the portraiture as I saw it. Although I thus readily accounted to my reason, if not altogether to my conscience, for the startling fact just detailed, it did not the less fail to make a deep impression upon me. For months I could not rid myself of the phantasm of the cat, and during this period I went so far as to regret the loss of the animal, and to look about me among the vile haunts which I now habitually frequented, for another pet of the same species, and of somewhat similar appearance, with which to supply its place. One night, as I sat, half stupefied, in a den of more than infamy, my attention was suddenly drawn to some black object, reposing upon one of the immense hogsheads of gin or of rum, which constituted the chief furniture of the room. What now caused me surprise was the fact that I had not sooner perceived the object thereupon. It was a black cat, a very large one, fully as large as Pluto, and closely resembling him in every respect but one. Pluto had not a white hair upon any portion of his body, but this cat had a large, although indefinite, splotch of white, covering nearly the whole region of the breast. Upon my touching him, he immediately arose, purred loudly, rubbed his head against my hand, and appeared delighted with my notice. This, then, was the very creature of which I was in search. I at once offered to purchase it of the landlord, but this person made no claim to it, knew nothing of it, and had never seen it before. I continued my caresses, and when I prepared to go home, the animal evinced a disposition to accompany me. I permitted it to do so, occasionally stooping and patting it as I proceeded. When it reached the house, it domesticated itself at once, and became immediately a great favorite with my wife. 
For my own part, I soon found a dislike to it arising within me. This was just the reverse of what I had anticipated, but I know not how or why it was. By slow degrees, these feelings of disgust and annoyance rose into the bitterest of hatred. I avoided the creature, a certain sense of shame, and the remembrance of my former deed of cruelty prevented me from physically abusing it. I did not for some weeks strike or otherwise violently ill-use it, but gradually, very gradually, I came to look upon it with an unutterable loathing, and to flee silently from its odious presence as from the breath of a pestilence. What added no doubt to my hatred of the beast was the discovery that, like Pluto, it also had been deprived of one of its eyes. This circumstance, however, only endeared it to my wife, who, as I have already said, possessed that humanity of feeling which had once been my distinguishing trait. Meanwhile, its partiality towards me seemed to increase. Wherever I sat, it would crouch beneath my chair or spring upon my knees, covering me with its loathsome caresses. If I arose to walk, it would get between my feet and thus nearly throw me down. At such times, although I longed to destroy it with a blow, I withheld from so doing, partly by a memory of my former crime, but chiefly, let me confess it at once, by absolute dread of the beast. This dread was not exactly a dread of physical evil. I'm almost ashamed to own, yes, even in this felon's cell, of the terror with which the animal inspired me. My wife had called my attention more than once to the character of the mark of white hair of which I have spoken and which constituted the sole visible difference between the strange beast and the one I had destroyed. Although large, the mark had been indefinite, but by slow degrees, degrees nearly imperceptible, and which for a long time my reason struggled to reject as fanciful, it had, at length, assumed a distinct outline. It was now the image of a hideous, of a ghastly thing, of the gallows. And now I was indeed wretched, beyond the wretchedness of mere humanity. The creature left me no moment alone. I started hourly from dreams of unutterable fear to find the hot breath of the thing upon my face and its vast weight, an incarnate nightmare that I had no power to shake off, incumbent eternally upon my heart. One day, my wife accompanied me upon some household errand into the cellar of the old building which our poverty compelled us to inhabit. The cat followed me down the steep stairs and, nearly throwing me headlong, exasperated me to madness, uplifting an axe and forgetting in my wrath the childish dread which had hitherto stayed my hand, I aimed a blow at the animal, which of course would have proved instantly fatal had it descended as I wished. But this blow was arrested by the hand of my wife. Goaded by the interference into a rage more than demonical, I threw my arm from her grasp and buried the axe in her brain. She fell dead upon the spot without a groan. This hideous murder accomplished, I set myself forthwith and with entire deliberation to the task of concealing the body. I knew that I could not remove it from the house either by day or by night without the risk of being observed by the neighbors. Many projects entered my mind. 
At one period, I thought of cutting the corpse into minute fragments and destroying them by fire. At another, I resolved to dig a grave for it in the floor of the cellar. Again, I deliberated about casting it in the well in the yard, about packing it in a box as if merchandise, with the usual arrangements, and so getting a porter to take it from the house. Finally, I hit upon what I considered a far better expedient solution. I determined to wall the body up in the cellar, as the monks of the Middle Ages are recorded to have walled up their victims. For a purpose such as this, the cellar was well adapted. Its walls were loosely constructed and had lately been layered throughout with a rough plaster which the dampness of the atmosphere had prevented from hardening. Moreover, in one of the walls was a projection caused by a false chimney or fireplace that had been filled up and made to resemble the rest of the cellar. I had no doubt that I could readily displace the bricks at this point, insert the corpse, and wall the hole up as before, and that no eye could detect anything suspicious. By means of a crowbar, I easily dislodged the bricks, and having carefully deposited the body against the inner wall, while with little trouble I relayed the whole structure as it originally stood. Having procured mortar and sand, and with every possible precaution, I prepared a plaster which could not be distinguished from the old, and with this I carefully went over the new brickwork. When I had finished, I felt satisfied that all was right. The wall did not present the slightest appearance of having been disturbed. The rubbish on the floor was picked up with the minutest care. I looked round triumphantly. My labor had not been in vain. My next step was to look for the beast which had been the cause of so much wretchedness, for I had resolved to put it to death. But the crafty animal had been alarmed at the violence of my previous anger and did not present itself in my present mood. It is impossible to describe or to imagine the deep, the blissful sense of relief which the absence of the detested creature occasioned in my bosom. It did not make its appearance during the night, and thus, for one night at least, since its introduction into the house, I soundly and tranquilly slept. I slept even with the burden of murder upon my soul. The second and the third day passed, and still my tormentor came not. Once again I breathed as a free man. The monster in terror had fled the premises forever. I should behold it no more. My happiness was supreme. The guilt of my dark deed disturbed me but little. Some few inquiries had been made, but these had been readily answered. Even a search had been instituted, but of course nothing was to be discovered. I looked upon my future felicity as secured. Upon the fourth day since the assassination, a party of police came, very unexpectedly, into the house, and proceeded again to make rigorous investigation of the premises. Secure, however, in the inscrutability of my place of concealment, I felt no embarrassment whatever. The officers bade me to accompany them in their search. They left no nook or corner unexplored. At length, for the third or fourth time, they descended into the cellar. I quivered not a muscle. My heart beat calmly, as that of one who slumbers in innocence. I walked the cellar from end to end. I folded my arms upon my bosom and roamed easily to and fro. The police were thoroughly satisfied and began to depart up the stairs from the cellar. The glee at my heart was too strong to be restrained. I burned to say if but one word by way of triumph 
and to render doubly sure their assurance of my guiltlessness. Gentlemen, I said at last, I delight to have allayed your suspicions. I wish you all health and a little more courtesy. By the by, gentlemen, this... This is a very well-constructed house. I may say, an excellently well-constructed house. The walls are solidly put together. And here, through the frenzy of bravado, I rapped heavily with a cane which I held in my hand upon that very portion of the brickwork behind which stood the corpse of my wife. No sooner had the reverberation of my blows sunk into silence than I was answered by a voice from within the tomb, by a cry, at first muffled and broken like the sobbing of a child and then quickly swelling into one long, loud and continuous scream, utterly anomalous and inhuman, a howl, a wailing shriek, half of horror and half of triumph, such as might have arisen only out of hell, conjointly from the throats of the damned in their agony and of the demons that exult in their damnation. Of my own thoughts, it is folly to speak. Swooning, I staggered to the opposite wall. For one instant, the party upon the stairs remained motionless, through extremity of terror and awe. In the next, a dozen stout arms were toiling at the wall, which quickly fell. The corpse, already greatly decayed and clotted with gore, stood erect before the eyes of the spectators. Upon its head, with red extended mouth and solitary eye of fire sat the hideous beast whose craft had seduced me into murder and whose informing voice had consigned me to the hangman. I had walled up the monster within the tomb. You've been listening to Through a Glass Darkly from Jabberwocky Audio Theatre. Tonight's presentation, The Black Cat, first published in the Saturday Evening Post, August 19th, 1843. Written by Edgar Allan Poe and performed by Tal Aviazer. Produced by Jabberwocky Audio Theatre in association with WERALP Radio Arlington. Post-production services provided by Tohu Bohu Productions, LLC. Edited, mixed, and mastered by William R. Coughlin. Tal Aviazer appears courtesy of Red Monkey Theatre Group. Learn more about their work at redmonkeytheatre.org. This recording is the property of Team Jabberwocky, LLC, and may not be rebroadcast, retransmitted, or redistributed without express permission from Team J. For all the latest episodes and information on Jabberwocky Audio Theatre, visit jabberaudio.com. If you're enjoying Through a Glass Darkly and the other yarns we spin at Jabberwocky Audio Theatre, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast provider of choice. Check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash teamjabberwocky for exclusive content and to help us continue to bring you further tales of mysterious suspense and high adventure. Until next time, this is William R. Coughlin saying thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next thrilling production from Jabberwocky Audio Theatre. (laughs) 
the Jabberwock. 